every time you're having a moment of real deep human experience, you will turn to a song, you will turn to a poem, you will turn to a piece of music because you run out of words, right? It, you run out of logic. You're looking for something to explain why this all matters that is more than the daily experience. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. So today we're going to talk about power. And no, I'm not talking about electricity. I'm talking about the type of power that we can use to influence the behavior of others. So our guest is redefining power from what he calls a currency, where it's held by only a few, to more of a current, where it's held by many and where it grows through connections. Now, Clark, we have been living in a crazy world over the last few years with a lot of unexpected events, be it in social change movements like hashtag Me Too, where we've seen some previously untouchable heads of industry taken down, or in the world of business where, look, 10 years ago, who on earth would have thought that Airbnb would be worth more than Hilton? to the world of politics, where we've seen some people who become heads of state that, again, no one would have imagined. Our guest today claims that in many of these instances, if you take a step back from the chaos, you see that there's an underlying force at work, and he calls this new power. I am so curious to hear more, and I'm so curious to learn how, by understanding new power, we can actually change and reshape the world. Our guest today for me is fascinating because he's in the world of business, he's in the world of the arts, he's taught, he's written. So he has an unusual understanding of the intersections of different parts of the world. As a Brit with British understatement, of course, he um, says it all more interestingly than perhaps we might, which gives a great deal of humor and fun to the discussion. So without further ado, our guest today is Henry Timms, presidency of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. He's the creator and co-founder of Giving Tuesday, which is the global philanthropic movement that engages people in acts of generosity in close to 100 countries. He's also the author of the international best-selling book, New Power. Henry, welcome to Redefiners. Thank you for joining us. What a pleasure it is. We'd love to hear from you a little bit more about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? And actually take us back, take us to the early years. Did you come from a family of artists and creatives? What were some of the early influences? I think I came from a family of ideas. My dad was an archaeologist. My mom was an artist and illustrator. Mm. And so we were, we were a family of stories. I had a very kind of curious childhood, which is a great gift. And I had access to the arts in a way that many don't. 
you know, I had the opportunity to go to the theatre. We didn't go all the time. I lived in Exeter in the southwest of England, but we would go to the theatre and we would go see museums. And there was a kind of a luxury, in a way, of artistic experience in my childhood, which I think was formative, no question. And then my career was, you know, there are those people who I'm always very jealous of who sit down at 18 years old and plan out their whole lives. I'm sure some of your listeners have this kind of brilliant brain where they can yeah. think ahead 40 years and they make move A yeah. followed by move B followed by move C. And I never did that. I had a, in artistic terms, it was kind of improvisational. So I began my career in the arts. I worked for a publishing company. I then went to work for two of the Prince of Wales's charities. I then went to work for an entrepreneur who was uh, thinking a lot about how the arts can build bridges across the world. I then went to the 92nd Street Y and, and became president and ended up at Lincoln Center. And in retrospect, there is a logic to that journey. Mm -hmm. But I have to say it was um, a, a lot of fortune that led me to where I ended up. And was the move to the U.S. deliberate? And do, do you see yourself staying there for the rest of your career? Yes, I think New York is so exciting. Mm. In one of my previous jobs, I had an apartment in New York, which came with the job. So I was here a lot. And there's something so dynamic and creative and optimistic about New York. It's a cliche, but you know, if you, if, 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 if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere yeah. is, is a real thing. It is kind of the highest stakes and the highest ambition. And there's an energy to that that I think is just so exciting. I, I couldn't agree with you more as well. Although I will say I love visiting New York and I get a lot of energy when I'm there. I think after two weeks, I'm glad to head back to London, where it's, to I, your I, point, a bit quieter. From what I understand, yeah. I think, look, there is no perfection. Anyway, I'm sure New York is so good for the mind. I'm not sure it's quite as good for the soul. Yeah. Right. I think over time in particular, I think that New York can be expensive on people because it is a little relentless, but it's relentless because it's always trying to reimagine itself. Yeah. It's always trying to renew. Yeah. And I think that in a way, that's what, what Lincoln Center is trying to do. For our non-US listeners... Can you tell us a bit about the magnitude and the prominence and the importance of the Lincoln Center? So Lincoln Center is the world's leading performing arts center. It's comprised of 10 of the greatest arts organizations in the world, including the New York City Ballet, Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, uh, Juilliard, you know, Lincoln Center Theater, the, the list goes on. And it brings together all of these organizations on one campus. Lincoln Center was founded in the 60s mm -hmm. and it's very much a product of the Cold War. So it was very much came alive at a time that there was a true battle of ideas going on around the world. And Lincoln Center was constructed in many ways to be an exhibit of democracy. It was supposed to demonstrate what America was on its best day. It. Here is the ambition, here is the virtuosity, here is the quality of what American democracy really looks like. And we think about that idea a lot right now for obvious reasons, in the sense that what, what is our role as an institution in making a case for the best of this country? Mm. And I, I know my accent is as thick as marmalade from a British perspective, but my mother is American. I'm a proud citizen. So I, I, have, I have a foot in both camps. I think you've hit on something as Henry Nanazno. I'm on the board of New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center. And we say it's the house where things are created, where new dance, and you talk about New York City always renewing. I think this concept of the arts as renewing energy, as well as relaxing, as many do to enjoy the arts, but renewing energy and keeping the spirit going, be it New York or be it America, we can't lose sight of that. Henry, how do you see live artistic performance and balance it importantly and successfully in the digital world? We realize what New York, many cities around the world, we realize what they looked like without the arts. Mm -hmm. 
we realize what, you know, in New York in particular, you know, you take it for granted that any given night there are a thousand glorious things available to you. And for two years there weren't, yeah. right? All these things disappeared. And I think in a way that has been a, a tragedy for so many, of course, but it did do something which it helped remind us of how important the arts are for our lives. We get, you know, tied up in pretzels sometimes about proving the value of the arts. You know, if only... If only you learn to play the cello, then your child might get good at mathematics one day. Or if they do this, they'll have some secondary benefit. And, and you realize, of course, that the arts do something much more important than that. The arts are fundamental to how we navigate our humanity, who we are as human beings. You know, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all stuck inside and we were all keeping away from our neighbors and we were, you know, cleaning the foods that came in our house and we were keeping every part of us was about distance, right? Distance from each other, distance from the outside world. And at seven o'clock each evening was the only time each day that didn't happen. There was this one moment at seven o'clock each evening in New York, and it happened in cities around the world where people opened up their windows okay. and they got saucepans and they got whisks and they got spoons. And if you had a trumpet, you got your trumpet. And there was this moment where everyone created music together. Right. Do you remember? Yeah. Remember that time when everyone kind of just had this kind of seven o'clock music and, and no matter who heard that, it was like the worst community orchestra in history came alive to play every <laughs> night at seven. And it was a defiant noise. It was a noise that said we are not scared anymore. It was a noise that said we create things together. Every time you're having a moment of real deep human experience, you will turn to a song, you will turn to a poem, you will turn to a piece of music. Because you run out of words, right? It, you run out of logic. You're looking for something to explain why this all matters that is more than the daily experience. Henry, I'd love to go back to what you were saying around how the arts, it helps you understand what it's like to be a human. And actually, it did take me back to the first six months of COVID, which for me were horrible. Homeschooling with a single child. My son was not doing well at all because he just had three adults around him. And... It's funny because he still thinks, he thinks of those six months in actually with fond memories because the one thing that got him through it is at the end of homeschooling and at the end of my work day, we would crank up the music. It was usually Ed Sheeran because that's what he liked at the time. And we would just sing and dance like at the top of our voices. And I'm pretty tone deaf singer, um, but it, it, it actually, I mean, I have goosebumps thinking about it. It, it saved us. It really saved us in those quite scary months. Yeah. Do you have any personal stories about how the arts helped you or your family in, in those early COVID days? The thing which was most moving for me, we were very committed to this idea of uh, at Lincoln Center that, that we were not going to give in to this idea that the sky was falling. Mm -hmm. We were not going to say this is a complete disaster, the world's collapsing, we have hope. We really wanted to be bold. Uh. So we built 10 stages outdoors at Lincoln Center our project was called Restart Stages. And the idea was how could we create an outdoor performing arts center, which would allow people to start performing and then rehearsing and get the arts organizations at Lincoln Center, like New York City Ballet, and all over New York, give people a kind of context to start performing again. And that was a real, a, an amazing thing to see because it completely revolutionized in a way, the way that we thought about performance. And, and the proudest thing I think we did was there was a naturalization ceremony. Mm -hmm. And we had 300 people who came to become Americans at Lincoln Center during COVID from 54 countries, wow. I think, in the end, as a part of one ceremony. And there was a moment there at the beginning of that concert where you thought about the the 
bravery and the courage of many of the stories of those new Americans, where they had come from, what, what they had come from, how they had come through COVID. And there was a moment at the start of that when the, the singer Harolyn Blackwell, who is a, you know, a great jewel of Lincoln Center, she sang at the moment of that. And, and I just completely lost it in a way that British people never do. I mean, I was, thank, thank God I wasn't speaking because I was just in, in, in absolute floods of tears and it just it basically became a human puddle. And, and because I think there are moments that it, from a Lincoln Center perspective, looking back on our very best day, we are demonstrating that there is a, a civic and an artistic and an American narrative that fits together and we can all be very proud of. Mm. All those things are under attack and for some good reasons, but that moment was, was, was pretty stunning. Love that. Let's maybe change tack and talk about Giving Tuesday, which is something that you founded in 2012. Um, it's described as a global generosity movement, and you originally had it on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I guess maybe as a counterbalance to Black Friday, which is truly my worst day of the year, at least. It's grown in the last decade into a global movement, a huge global movement that inspires people to give and to celebrate the act of generosity. Would love to hear how you first thought of the idea, how you launched it, and are you surprised at how big it is today? There was Black Friday and there was Cyber Monday. Mm. And those both came after Thanksgiving. And I remember thinking, someone's going to grab Tuesday. <laughs> and they're probably going to grab Tuesday for something something commercial, yeah. right? Because you had Black Friday, which was about getting deals, and you had Cyber Monday, which is about getting deals online. And I thought, well, Tuesday's going to become like, you know, customer satisfaction yeah. Tuesday or something. And so so I thought it would be a good idea <laughs> that we try and grab it for the philanthropy world. Yeah. We try and grab Tuesday. And, and, and that was the original idea of Giving Tuesday, which is, okay, if you have these two days which are about consumption, could you have a day which is more about compassion? Could you have a day which is more about not getting things but giving things? That was the basic, the basic premise. So if you had thought about what I would call kind of the old power approach to something like Giving Tuesday, I was working at the 92nd Street Y at the time. The old power version of Giving Tuesday would be we're creating the 92nd Street Y's Giving Tuesday. We're going to name it after our organization. We're going to give you a set of rules that you have to follow to participate in Giving Tuesday. And we are going to make sure that you have to credit us on every single time you mention it and get us on board. And I even remember one of our board members at the time, we were talking about this Giving Tuesday and I was saying, look, we're going to do after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, we'll do Giving Tuesday. And he was like, that's great. Where's the 92nd Street Wise logo going to be? <laughs> in, is it going to be between the Giving and the Tuesday? And I said, no, it's not, it's not going to be on there because if this is all about us, that's the old power instinct, right? It's all about us and our credit. It won't go anywhere. And it's, you know, it's grown all around the world now. It's generated over $7 billion for good causes around the world. It's in 100 countries right now. And everywhere it is around the world, it, it does something different. In Barbados, there's a lot of work around blood drives. Uh, there's lots of community campaigns around the, the country in America where communities come together, essentially like doing kind of barn raisings and things. Mm -hmm. It's become this kind of global celebration of something we have in common, which is our capacity to care for each other, our capacity to give. I have to say, I'm astonished that 10 years later, it's still going bigger and better than ever. Well, it is remarkable. I love this capacity to care for others is, is brought forward. But if we can just stick with this new power, the book you and Jeremy wrote and Giving Tuesday was an example of that. But can you walk us through the principle of talking about it, much less writing about it? And now that it's really taken off, these currents that Nanaz talked about as we started, how do you look at new power, particularly in a post-COVID world? What is different about a new generation is that people want to participate in 
people have a higher expectation of participation, right? All these new technologies have allowed us to participate in ways that we were not able to do so before. So even if you go back a generation, you go back to when I was a teenager, I had a nice upbringing and lived in a nice town in England and actually had pretty few routes to participate in the world, right? If I wanted to have my voice heard, I could write a letter to the local newspaper, right? And they wouldn't publish it. Or I could, I remember sitting on my stairs, phoning the radio station, trying to get through to to share my important and very insightful 14-year-old views on the politics of the UK. And you would just dial and dial and then they would never take your call. You just didn't have, you didn't have this expectation that you were able to shape the world. And you compare that to a teenager today and the life that they live, which is on any given day, they have an opinion, they're a photographer, they're a producer, they're a financer. They have this this whole kind of portfolio of things that people can now do in the world. They expect to participate. They have this kind of expectation of participation. And what new power really is, is the way about thinking about how you mobilize that participation. How do you create a context to take advantage of the fact that you have all these people wanting to do more and find a common cause for them? And so new power you know, in a way is an explanation for many of the things which have been the kind of the phenomena which have defined our age. If you think about, you mentioned Anas earlier, some of the social movements, you know, the, the Me Too, the Black Lives Matter. These are not old power movements. This mm. is not like there's a general secretary of Black Lives Matter who lays down all the ways things should be and everyone pays attention and falls in line. In fact, the co-founders of Black Lives Matter were very intentional about this idea that they wanted to create a leader-full movement, not a leader-less movement, a leader-full movement that lots of people have the space to be leaders as a part of, of something like Black Lives Matter. So I think you're beginning to see, you know, the social movements, you're seeing this new power playing out in social movements, you're seeing it playing out in business. You, you mentioned Airbnb, but but think about Facebook. Facebook is nothing without our participation, all of us. It is literally an empty vessel without the, the contributions of data that, that we all make. And, and you look at politics too, and the the election of Trump, the election of Barack Obama in both cases, very different political perspectives, of course, but in both cases, they had the benefit of these kind of new power um, constituencies that helped get them into office. So across all of our worlds, we're seeing new power play out more and more and more. And so from an institutional perspective, the argument that Jeremy and I make in the book is is not that old power is bad and new power is good, right? Mm -hmm. But that any leader or organization looking to succeed needs to understand how old power works and needs to understand how new power works and is able to pull both levers. And in terms of kind of, if you think about redefining, right, the theme of your podcast, every leader, every institution who is listening is typically going to be pretty good at old power. Otherwise, they wouldn't have got to where they are. The challenge is how do you get good at new power? How do you build that suite of skills? And for those listeners who are not yet convinced by this argument, let me try another example the, the story of the pandemic initially was the triumph of old power, right? Mm-hmm. The, the experts, the, the geniuses who are around the world managed to get a vaccine. It was a true demonstration of the power of science and reason and evidence and empiricism and was a just, a, you know, at a time previous to the pandemic, there was a lot of questioning of, of experts. It really proved what, what experts could do in the world. It really, really stood up. And yet, although we got the miracle of the vaccine, we saw many, many people not taking it. We saw vaccine yeah. hesitancy yeah. become a very big deal around the world. We saw anti-vaxxers becoming very powerful. And the anti-vax movement is a very new power phenomenon, yeah. right? The, the anti-vax movement is really all about these kind of currents of people online 
justifying each other's perspectives, supporting each other, sharing false information, reaffirming wrongheaded beliefs. And they have effectively outmaneuvered the institutions of our world who had all of the evidence and all of the data mm-hmm. and none of the relevance. Mm. And so as you think about the world as it plays out, uh, what we need to do is combine old and new power. We need organizations who have expertise and uh, relevance and and strength. And we need to combine that with organizations who are able to uh, mobilize at scale around their values. And that seems to me on an institutional level, the key question of our time. Henry, it's fascinating. We, being in the leadership business, and having chosen for four or five decades who was the leader, who won, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, now, in the last four or five years, particularly the last three, it's who can become a better leader. Our business has shifted to develop leaders, not just pick the lottery. So we've evolved our whole business around leadership in helping leaders develop and succeed in succession processes. And our business has changed dramatically, like everyone's business, to help leaders become better leaders through science and art. Have you changed as a leader because of understanding new power or even the acceleration by the pandemic? I don't think any leader doesn't change. Well, that's not true. I do know some leaders who haven't changed. There are Um, a lot who don't change, my friend. That's where where problems happen, okay? (laughs) Yes. I mean, look, I've changed enormously because of the work I've done around new power. And I think from my perspective, the thing I feel most blessed by is, you know, I'm fundamentally a practitioner. The new power work was what you would categorize as thought leadership, right? But I do this for a living. Like, this is not abstract. This is how we think about the day job. And so the thing I found from a leadership perspective most rewarding is the combining of theory and practice, that you are thinking about stuff like new power. And and then because of the book and because of the work Jeremy and I did around new power, you are learning from all these organizations that you would never be inside otherwise. As a kind of researcher, I got to get my head around that in some really interesting ways. And then I was always able to, you know, the the 92nd Street Y is 143 years old. Lincoln Center is 62 years old. I spent the last 15 years in organizations that were very successful old power organizations looking at how you reimagine them in new power ways. Mm. I'm humbled every day by how much I learn about these worlds and what's changing. And I, I don't think any leader... I think that look at you know this as, as the, the danger with all leaders is you start believing your own press and you start you know when you're CEO you know it's 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 there are lots of very positive things about that and there are lots of very nice experiences and people typically think all your ideas are terrific and your jokes suddenly become funny and you know you can't confuse that with reality so I've found this work very humbling because it keeps me learning and every day I learn something new about how power is shifting and and I hope I can bring that back to the day job. We'll be right back with Henry, but first, our CEO, Constantine Alexandrakis, will share our latest research on the changing nature of the C-suite. What's the single most important skill or attribute to look for when you're hiring a new C-suite executive? To find out, Harvard Business School recently partnered with Russell Reynolds Associates to analyze nearly 5,000 job descriptions spanning a 17-year period. What trends they found may surprise you. The one capability of new C-suite executives prioritized above all others is social skills. Companies today need leaders who are able to motivate diverse, tech-savvy, and global workforces. Leaders who are adept at playing the role of corporate statesperson and working with a variety of people and groups. Those who have a high level of self-awareness, 
the ability to listen and communicate well, and the capacity to infer how others are thinking and feeling. In other words, empathy. Leaders with high social skills have the capacity to adapt and apply their range of skills in new environments, new companies, and with a new group of colleagues. Of course, companies still need executives who have the expertise to manage financial, technical, and operational resources. But in an increasingly complex and changing global business landscape, those traditional capabilities often take a backseat to critical social skills when it comes to hiring new C-suite executives. To learn more about evaluating and hiring your next C-suite executive, go to russellreynolds.com insights. And now, back to our conversation with Henry. Henry, you just on this concept of new power about sustainability, climate change, as the father of four children in their 20s, and they're looking at me every day as a leader and on a podcast or writing a book on sustainability saying, Dad, do you get it? Because it doesn't look like it. So Gen Z gets it. We are learning from the top down and the bottom up at the same time about sustainability, climate change, and, and how we react to this. How do you see new power being used today when it comes to sustainability, promoting it, and evolving it to have a greater impact in the future? Look, I think certainly some of the work around I mean, climate is a good example, I think, of, of new power having played a significant role in recent years. You know, a lot, a lot of the climate, many of the people who fought those climate debates for a long time, mm. with not as much success, the old power world um, had, had, again, all of the evidence they needed for a very long time without some of the traction. They've got more of the traction now, and, and, and thank God for that. I would be very careful, though, about romanticizing the, the next generation. I think it's very easy to assume that the next generation is necessarily going to be tolerant and democratic and you know committed to climate change and all those good things, when I'm not sure the data backs that up. I'm not sure that's actually true, that that's, that's necessarily what's going to happen. There's a danger that this whole sector has been kind of over-wonkified Right, because normal people don't talk about ESG. Yeah. Right, normal people don't talk about sustainability. These are corporate buzzwords which we're very comfortable with, but actually don't play out much beyond the conference circuit. Yeah. So I think there's also kind of bigger question around how we reframe some of the kind of reliable three-letter acronyms that suit us very well in the professional world and get them to scale. That's yeah. the question I think, particularly around climate, and and that's some some territory I think is going to be really interesting in the years ahead. ESG at worst is just a, is an offset, right? That you have these organizations who are fundamentally doing bad things in the world. They are creating products which are essentially either harmful or neutral. And they are focusing heavily on ESG as a way of deflecting from their core work. And it becomes quite convenient way of thinking around it. In a way, it's kind of suffered the same fate as CSR did. In, in the yeah. same way yeah. that it became yeah. so broad yeah. that it essentially yeah. means doing something nice at some point. And that, I think, doesn't hold up particularly. Yeah. Mm. Henry, thank you so much. We're just conscious of time, so we'd like to end each podcast with some rapid-fire questions. Um, this is where we're going to ask you a series of five questions, and we ask that you respond as quickly as possible. Are you ready? Great. Henry, what's your hidden talent? I think that the few talents I have are on display. I don't think there's anything hiding. If it was hidden, I'd have, I'd have released it earlier. Second question, and you may have already answered it, but what is the most memorable live performance you've seen? I think, I think the naturalization yeah. ceremony was pretty close. I think that was, that was, that was, that was pretty amazing. Uh, Tom Waits live in Paris. I saw Tom Waits in Paris when I was 24. 
And he, it was the most extraordinary show. He entered from the back of the stage, flowing glitter in the air. And it felt like the, the ceiling had this beautiful kind of trompe d'oeil. And it felt like the sky was overlooking us. And I was 24 and didn't care about anything. And Tom Waits was in Paris. And so that was, <laughs> that was off the charts. There you go. What's your favorite decade and why? Uh, this one right now, because what, what else, you know, why look back? Mm. <laughs> what is your go-to dish to cook? Omelets. <laughs> what do you, that's, that's what, about as good as what do you put in your omelets? Uh, whatever's around. <laughs> do you prefer movies or live theater? I, I plead the fifth. As president of Lincoln Center, I love, say, I love movies. I want to hear, I love, I hear the gonna, answer to that one. I'm was, not going to get trapped with that question. Um, we I love we'd them all sneak equally. it right in there at the end. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, well, the right answer, of course, with you, Clark, is ballet. Do I, I prefer ballet? <laughs> <laughs> Good man. No, I, I tell you one thing about the Lincoln Center, one thing about the Lincoln Center job, which I recommend to anybody. I ended up seeing so many things at Lincoln Center, obviously, as part of my job, which I would never have chosen to go and see otherwise. So I ended up seeing art that I would never have seen. And it's such a good reminder of how easily we gravitate towards yeah. the things that we know yeah. and don't challenge ourselves to go and th see things we haven't yeah. seen. So I think one of the great gifts of, the, of this job has been that I've seen things I would never have chosen to go and see, and it's really pushed me in new and interesting ways. Henry, thank you so much for being here. We greatly appreciate it. If improvisation was your career, improv worked on podcast for you today as well. Thank you. But a couple of thoughts just in summary for our listeners. This passion you talked about in the, the power of arts in renewing our lives, the role of New York City in renewing itself all the time and the power of the arts, whether it's the battle of ideas and politics in the 60s or coming out of COVID and seeing the importance of arts in our lives to navigate humanity, to give us energy, and that arts helps us connect with other people, to understand other people and to evolve, that ultimately... Some of the greatest deep human experiences, joy or grief or uncertainty, we turn to literature and music to give us solace and inspiration in those moments. And, you know, redefinition, redefining is changing and evolving back to, as you said, uh, improv as, as a career path. The collective beauty of the arts helps us move forward and look forward that we get and we can find joy in giving as a community coming together, that we have the capacity to care for each other, but occasionally we might need to be reminded. And this concept of new power that I love in the business we're in at Russell Reynolds, this concept that anyone who got to be a leader recently probably was the benefit of old power, but their success will probably depend upon understanding new power. The sense of the higher expectation of others to participate to be part of new power, that they have to tap the energy of participation and communication to get the energy from the, the power connections you talked about. And why look back? Henry Timms, why look back? Well, I think you've learned a lot from the past that helped develop you in the present, and you have tapped this concept of participation for success and inspiration. And thank you for having outdoor stages and naturalizations and keeping the lights on at Lincoln Center and keeping the lights on about how much it's important to give, not just to get. So, Henry, thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com 
Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.